I'm reading from the book of Numbers, chapter 16, beginning at the first verse. Now Korah, the son of Izhar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, and Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and On, the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben, took men, and they rose up before Moses with certain of the children of Israel, 250 princes of the assembly, famous in the congregation, men of renown. And they gathered themselves together against Moses and against Aaron, and said unto them, Ye take too much upon you, seeing all the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Wherefore then lift ye up yourselves above the congregation of the Lord? And when Moses heard it, he fell upon his face. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. I have been working on this sermon for several weeks, trying to trim it down so that I could fit all the material into one sermon, but it just can't be done. I'm going to have to split it into several parts. But if I do that, then there's the danger that you will misunderstand what I'm saying in part one if you don't hear what comes afterward. So let me just make one statement that summarizes the whole series, and that is, we must honor those who are in civil authority. But sometimes Christians must disobey the civil authority. But even in those cases in which the Christian disobeys, we're still under the obligation to honor those in civil authority. That's probably not going to make it any easier for people to swallow what I'm going to say, but it may be some consolation. In our previous studies of how the Anglican Church has prayed during times of pandemics, we have seen that in the 1552 and the 1662 version of the prayer book, the prayer to be used during times of common plague and sickness, there was a reference to the plague God sent upon Israel when David sinned by numbering the people, which we looked at in some detail last week. But in 1662, the prayer book added a reference to another plague that God sent upon Israel found in the 16th chapter of the book of Numbers. 14,700 people died in this plague. This is a very long account in the book of Numbers covering 50 verses. So let me just summarize part of it for you before we get into the spiritual significance of this plague. In this story, we have an account of a rebellion against the leadership of Moses and Aaron. A man named Korah, who was a Levite, conspired with Dathan, Abiram, and On of the tribe of Reuben, along with 250 other very important men in Israel, and they decided that Moses and Aaron had too much power and authority. So they came to Moses and said, You've taken too much upon yourselves. All the people of God are holy, not just you. The Lord is with all the people of Israel, not just you. You said you were going to take us to a land flowing with milk and honey. Well, we aren't in that land of milk and honey. As a matter of fact, you took us out of a land of milk and honey to bring us into this wilderness to die. It's funny that when I think of Moses, I always think of Charlton Heston because of Cecil B. DeMille's movie, The Ten Commandments. And I think Charlton Heston was a great Moses. But unfortunately, when I think of Dathan, I think of Edward G. Robinson, one of the most interesting choices for someone to play a biblical character in the history of film. Anyway, what we have in this story is Korah, Dathan, Abiram, and a large number of people rebelling against Moses and Aaron. I'll cover the rest of this story in future sermons, but for now, let us just observe that for this sin, God sent a plague among the people. Why did the writers of the prayer book want us to have this story in mind during any time of plague? And what does this story tell us about the reasons for the plague? 
And what does this teach us about the Christian response to a plague? First, let us look at the sin the people committed. Though there are many sins mentioned in the story, the primary one is that the people were rebelling against God-appointed authority. As you well know, the people of Israel began to rebel against the leadership of Moses almost immediately after they left Egypt. Moses leads the people out of Egypt, they get to the Red Sea, and we read in Exodus 14, 11 through 12, And they said unto Moses, Because there were no graves in Egypt, hast thou taken us away to die in the wilderness? Wherefore hast thou dealt thus with us to carry us forth out of Egypt? Is not this the word that we did tell thee in Egypt, saying, Let us alone, that we may serve the Egyptians? For it had been better for us to serve the Egyptians than that we should die in the wilderness. And now we see a similar rebellion in the book of Numbers. God had appointed Moses and Aaron to those leadership positions, but these rebels say, all the people of God are holy, not just you. These rebels were the great champions of equality, freedom, and democracy. All the people are holy. Let someone else take a turn in leading the people. But God sees this as an act of rebellion, not just against Moses and Aaron, but against him. And this is the sin that the plague prayer in the 1662 prayer book mentions. O Almighty God, who in thy wrath didst send a plague upon thine own people in the wilderness for their obstinate rebellion against Moses and Aaron. Obstinate rebellion are the key words. So for the writers of the prayer book, God would send a plague for the sin of obstinate rebellion against God-appointed authority. In order to understand why this particular sin is singled out, we need to think about how the prayer book looks upon leaders, both in church and state, and what our duties are toward them. Since most of us, especially Americans, have a rebel streak, I know that we don't like to hear this, but nevertheless, we need to look at it. Actually, it is not just Americans who have a rebellious streak. All human beings do. Essentially, a fallen human being is simply a rebel. We rebelled against God in the Garden of Eden, and we have been living in rebellion ever since, whether it's rebellion against God or rebellion against leaders in church or state. By nature, we love to rebel against everything. We love to disagree with one another. For most of us, disagreeing with others is the only thing that gives meaning to our lives. The constant attitude of the human heart is, nobody's going to tell me what to do. We get up in the morning thinking to ourselves, who or what can I rebel against today because everyone is wrong except me. But historically, Anglicans have always emphasized the duty of Christians to honor our leaders in church and state even when we disagree with them. I find it highly interesting that the reference to the plague prayer to this account in the book of Numbers was added to the prayer book in 1662. That should tell us something. The 1662 prayer book was the first major revision of the prayer book since 1552. The fact that these changes were made in 1662 causes us to think about what had just happened in England. In 1660, just two years earlier, the monarchy had been restored. The Puritans, under the leadership of Oliver Cromwell, had rebelled against the monarchy, which resulted in the beheading of King Charles I in 1649. 
an act which shocked many Christians because it was seen as a bloody act of rebellion against a God-appointed sovereign, one who was a professing Christian, no less, and the head of the Church of England. There are still people in some Anglican traditions who look upon Charles I as a Christian martyr. But after 11 years of Puritan rule, in 1660, the monarchy was restored with the son of Charles I, Charles II, returning to England from exile. In January of 1661, Thomas Venner led a group of people who had been known as the Fifth Monarchy Men in a failed attempt to overthrow Charles II. So when the 1662 prayer book came out, rebellion would have been fresh on the minds of many people. And some have suggested that this addition to the plague prayer was a warning that God takes the sin of rebellion against God-appointed authority very seriously, serious enough to send a plague. In 1673, Parliament declared that on May 29th each year, there would be a morning prayer service to give thanks for the restoration of the royal family. That service was a morning prayer service, just like ours, but with special scripture readings and prayers to fit the occasion. The heading of that morning prayer service read in part, a form of prayer and thanksgiving to Almighty God for having put an end to the great rebellion and the restitution of the king and royal family and restoration of the government after many years interruption. One of the colleagues of the day for that service gave thanks to God for restoring the monarchy under Charles II and for delivering the people of England from, and I quote, the unnatural rebellion, usurpation, and tyranny of ungodly and cruel men and from the sad confusions and ruin thereupon ensuing. That day, May the 29th, along with the commemoration of the beheading of Charles I on January 30th, was observed each year in England until 1859. But what I want you to notice about this prayer of thanksgiving for the restoration of the monarchy was the conviction that those who supported the monarchy viewed the rebellion against Charles I as unnatural. It was an abnormal thing, especially in those days, for a people to be disobedient to their king, disobedient to the point of trying to overthrow his rule, to the point of beheading him. It was the taking away of power that had been granted by God to the king. Furthermore, from the viewpoint of the people who had supported the king, this rebellion had resulted in tyranny and confusion. Oliver Cromwell and his followers had promised the people that they would free them from the tyranny of a king. But the people who supported the king believed that the Puritans had instituted a new form of tyranny, a Puritan tyranny. Furthermore, they believed that Puritan rule had resulted in confusion. Supporters of the royal family believed that after the death of Charles I, there were so many competing forces in the kingdom, politically and religiously, that the new republic could never negotiate a political and religious settlement, thus the confusion. The people who supported the king concluded that tyranny and chaos were the result of rebellion against God-appointed authority. Now, I gave you that little history lesson because Anglicanism has always held a firm belief in honoring those in positions of authority. That view is reflected in the Book of Common Prayer. But when the American Prayer Book came out in 1789, obviously some changes had to be made. We had no monarchy here in this country. Furthermore, our nation was founded 
in a rebellion against what many Americans, the Tories, believed was a God-appointed authority. We sometimes forget that around 500,000 people, maybe 15 to 20 percent of the population in the colonies, did not support the revolution because they believed it would result in either mob rule or tyranny. The majority of Anglican clergy, especially in the Northeast, supported the king and believed the American Revolution was wrong. But even when American Anglicans published their own prayer book in 1789, we see that they still supported the same kind of respect for those in positions of authority. In other words, they wanted Americans to honor the president and others in authority just as they had honored the king. As good Anglicans, we pray every morning and evening for the President of the United States and all in civil authority, just as the people in England prayed for the king or queen and their other national leaders. As a matter of fact, take our prayer for the President of the United States, stick in the word king or queen instead of president, and it's essentially the same prayer. We pray for the president and all in civil authority. We pray that they would do God's will and walk in the ways of the Lord. We pray that God would grant them heavenly gifts, and we pray that they would live a good, long life in health and prosperity, and that they would be saved and enjoy eternal life and happiness. We pray that they would be given wisdom and strength to know and to do the will of God, and we all know how much we need to be praying that prayer for our leaders every day. We pray that God would fill them with the love of truth and righteousness and make them ever mindful of their calling to serve this people in thy fear and how we need to pray that all our leaders in this country would tremble in fear before the Lord and his word. And Anglicans have made those prayerful petitions for all our presidents, whether they were Washington, Jefferson, Jackson, Lincoln, Kennedy, Nixon, Clinton, Bush, Obama, or Trump. And we pray the same for all in civil authority, whether they are Democrats or Republicans, conservatives or liberals. I know that sometimes we feel like we have to grit our teeth when we say that prayer, but Christian love and honor must triumph over our political differences, and we pray for God's blessings to be bestowed on all our leaders. But there's something else we have to pray in regard to our political leaders. We have to pray for ourselves and our response to their leadership. So the prayer that we use in the evening prayer service for the President of the United States and all in civil authority on page 32 of the 1928 Book of Common Prayer is much more difficult for us to pray. First, we pray that the President and those in authority would know whose ministers they are. As we'll see in just a moment, presidents and our political leaders are the ministers of God. And we pray that they would realize that they are the ministers of God. Unfortunately, very few of them do. But we should always be praying that they would realize they are God's ministers, because that is what they are, whether they realize it or not. And we pray that realizing that fact, they would above all things seek the honor and glory of God. Again, there have been very, very few political leaders who have ever, above all things, sought the honor and glory of God. Whether we are talking about the ancient kings of Israel 
or our leaders today. Nevertheless, we pray that they would seek God's honor and glory above all things. It takes a great deal of discipline to pray that prayer over and over again because it appears that God has very rarely answered that prayer. But the hard part of the prayer is what we pray for ourselves. We pray that we and all the people, duly considering whose authority they bear, may faithfully and obediently honor them according to thy blessed word and ordinance. So we should honor our political leaders. The very first book of common prayer that was published in 1549 contained a catechism. Part of that catechism was an explanation of the Ten Commandments, and that explanation is still in our 1928 prayer book. In explaining the Fifth Commandment, Honor thy father and thy mother, the explanation of that commandment in the original catechism is that we learn from this commandment to love, honor, and succor my father and mother, to honor and obey the king and his ministers, to submit myself to all my governors, teachers, spiritual pastors, and masters, to order myself lowly and reverently to all my betters. The Catechism in our 1928 American Prayer Book says exactly the same thing, except it substitutes the words civil authority for the word king. As you can see from the beginning, Anglicans have looked upon kings, governors, teachers, pastors, and masters as fathers. Therefore, if we do not honor them, we are living in violation of the fifth commandment. So in this prayer that we say each evening, we pray that we would honor them, realizing whose authority our leaders bear. Whose authority do they bear? Like it or not, those in civil authority bear the authority of God himself. And because they bear the authority of God, we must faithfully and obediently honor them according to thy blessed word and ordinance. Now, we are usually quite willing to do that as long as we agree with the political views of our leaders. But if we don't, suddenly we think they don't bear the authority of God anymore, and we are free to disobey them. But when the writers of the prayer book gave us this prayer, they knew we would have presidents, governors, congressmen, and other political leaders who did not share our political views. Nevertheless, we still have to realize that they bear the authority of God. Now, this is one of the very difficult things about being an Anglican American. As you can see in the 1789 prayer book and our 1928 prayer book, we tried to transfer the concept of honoring the king to honoring the state, and rightfully so. But I think one of the most awkward statements in our evening prayer liturgy is when we pray, O Lord, save the state. I'm sure you know the original wording of that prayer. O Lord, save the king. O Lord, save the state just doesn't have quite the same ring to it, does it? But this whole concept of honoring those in authority does not really sit well with Americans. Anglicanism comes from a tradition that is very rooted in the concept of honor for authority, obedience, and submission. 
Transferring that concept to the United States is not an easy thing. And quite frankly, I don't believe it's ever been fully embraced in this country. But we are trying to be Anglican Americans and this whole concept of honoring those in authority is extremely difficult because the first thing we do when we hear that is to immediately start looking for the loophole. So we ask the question, what do we do if our leaders are ungodly, immoral people who do not live in obedience to God? What if the laws they ordain are contrary to the law of God? Do we still have to honor them? It's rather amusing that when we ask that question, we seem to ask it like this. What should we do in that rare, rare case when we have ungodly rulers? I think we all know that situation is not rare. It is almost always the case. Throughout human history, God's people have almost always lived under the authority of ungodly people who had no respect for God and his law. If we're going to give honor only to those people who are godly, and agree with us politically and morally, we are never going to give honor to any of them. Now, I know that this is a difficult subject, and in and of itself, it would take volumes of writings to look at all aspects of this question. Just let me explain where the writers of the prayer book were coming from, because as the evening prayer for the president and those in civil authority says, honoring our leaders is part of being obedient to the word of God. Where did they ever come up with that idea?